Well, that beautiful song, don't we need that more and more as we think about the experiences that is taking place around the world in the United States of America and some of the challenges and the struggles that we are facing and uh, the headlines, the news reports, it's just all a lot of disturbing events that are taking place. And to know that we have a mighty God that we can rest in, that His peace can be our peace, and that we can live the life that God's called us to live. And that's going to be our invitation as we go through this text of Scripture for us this morning. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and we welcome you once again to Calvary Church. And I have in the bulletin an outline that is uh, more than any of us can sit and absorb and remember. So without apology, I'm going to give you as much information as I can because we have the one Sunday to talk about one of the most important topics that is in the Bible, and that is the armor of God. And uh, we need to make sure that we are ready for anything because we want to be dressed for success. There's something wrong with a surfer that is in a tuxedo. There's something wrong with a bride that is mowing the lawn. It doesn't fit the scenario that we should see taking place. On the other hand, when you're in battle, you want to make sure you're wearing the right garb. And for the police that uh, have been under the assault this last week in Dallas, Texas, 12 shot, five have been terribly killed as they were. Uh, here's an image of uh, Carlos Rojas, who is the chief of police here in Santa Ana. Next to him on the right is Tony Harrelson, who is the deputy chief who is now retired. Next to him is Doug McKeechee, who is also a deputy chief in the Santa Ana Police Department and other officers that are there as they had gathered together to pay honor to a, uh, a brother who had lost his battle for his life. And so we are here to support them. And I just want to let you know, if you're part of the law enforcement community actively or in retirement, we want to let you know that I and we here at Calvary Church, we are on your side. We support you. We believe in what God is doing through you. We believe that you are ministers. I've said this to the, uh, the cops that I have been with, that in, and it's a little baffling, I think, as I, even as I say it, uh, I say that, you know, Scripture has told us that you are a minister of God in Romans 13. And they kind of like, whoa, wait a second, you're putting a little bit too much on me right now. But that's what God has given to us to help us in our community to live the lives that God's called us to live. And so we want to stand in solidarity with many who have lost their lives and these family members. It's just a horrible, tragic thing that has been taking place. And as we go into the Scripture this morning, let me pray. Let me pray for us that our hearts will be open and certainly for the needs that are around our country and the sort of the terrible racial divide and law enforcement divide and even the politics that just is exhausting to think this is going to go on until November. So let's just pray and commit these things to God. Father, as we come before you and into your word, and uh, Lord, we need the grace, we need the rest, we need the peace uh, that you can provide for us as we have sung this morning so much already about the sovereignty of our Father in heaven and that he rules over all things and that Christ has come to help us to trust you, to believe in you, to believe that, God, you are working in this world and even as we see the terrible things that happen around us, God, we pray for that kind of peace with law enforcement, with the racial divide, and uh, even with a lot of the politics and the ugliness and the deceit and the lies that seem to be so prevalent. God, I pray that your truth would shine brightly and your love, even through us who are your followers, would be expressed so kindly to those that are around us. So help us on the journey, Father, even as we look into your word today to teach us well. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are in Ephesians chapter 6. Last week we began in what is uh, the Apostle Paul's written word to the church that is Ephesus, that is in the country that we call today Turkey, in those days Asia Minor. And uh, he is sitting there next to a Roman soldier because Paul wrote Ephesus and three other books when he was in prison. So he looks at this Roman soldier and he sees the armor that the soldier is wearing and he says, you know, spiritually speaking, we need to have our battle garb on as well. And so he has let us know that there is a spiritual war that is going on. Uh, There is a battle that is being fought that is out there, and we need to be trusting God because the spiritual powers and the principalities of the air, they are attacking us. It's not flesh and blood, but it's coming out of the powers of the air. So Paul then in this text gives us some insights as to the enemy's battle. Here is the leader of ISIS. Some people say he's dead, some people don't, but nevertheless, there is a leader of ISIS somewhere over there. What would happen if you could open up his notebook, his computer, and be able to read his notes, his plans, his strategies, the ways and the wares that he will attack and have some sort of a sense as to what he is up to? It would give us an extreme advantage over the battle that is going on and and, uh, all the so-called lone wolves that are out there carrying on their strategies as well. What Paul is giving to us is the opening of the notebook of Satan's strategies as he gives to us insights into the things that we should wear because those are the areas of attack that are going to come our way. So the text says this, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Six pieces of armor, and I highlight the word stand firm. He didn't say retreat. He didn't say run towards it. He said stand firm because what you have with these pieces is all that you will need in a spiritual war, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air that motivate flesh and blood to do evil things. These are what we need. And then I'm going to give you one other flavor on this text as I highlight these other words. It's interesting that Paul says here, not only stand firm, but then the first three pieces of the armor, he says, having these things. You have your loins girded with truth. You have the breastplate of righteousness. You have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He says, you have these things. These are things that we need every day. These are the qualities of a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. The truth, the righteousness, and the heart of peace. These things are always on us. Like those pieces of of, uh, armor on the Roman soldier, those we always have on us. And then he says, now you have three other things you need to take up. There will be occasions like the soldier has to take up the shield. And he says it's a shield of faith. There are times when you have to take up the helmet of salvation. They wouldn't always wear the helmet, but there are times you need to put that on to kind of remind yourself of who you are in Jesus Christ. And then there are those times you need to take up the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, so that you can have insight and you can have this offensive method in order to attack back and speak the truth when the enemy attacks us. So these are six pieces, three of which we should always have, the other three we should always have available and access to to be able to live our lives. Now I want to show you, 
there was a video that came out. It was actually in the movie in the theaters, and we saw it a number, year, a number of months ago. It's called Risen. It's a fairly Christ-centered video. And I'm going to show you just one little excerpt. It's a, it's a battle scene. I don't want to disturb anybody with it. But uh, it is a battle scene that gives us some insight into the Roman soldiers that Paul would have seen and experienced and helps us to understand some of these pieces of armor as well. So take a look at this scene. As tribute to Prefect Pontius Pilate, my task is to keep order in a city that is steeped in unrest. The Jews pray to their single god Yahweh for the arrival of the mystical Messiah. As their religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, try to keep an uneasy peace. But each day creates more zealots to challenge the rule of Rome and bring freedom. Instead, we bring them death. freeze frame. There is the Roman soldier. You can see all the six pieces of armament that this soldier has on, uh, aside from the shield that's behind him and those other enemy uh, or other Roman soldiers as well. But you can see how when you're in a battle, you better make sure you have it all in place. Now, that's an ugly and awful scene of flesh and blood battling each other. But the Apostle Paul says, I take that scene and I say, you know, The reality is that in the spiritual realm, we are in a battle as well. And unless we have the armament on us that we need to have on us, we will fall victim to the enemy's strategies and attacks. So I want us to have a little taste of that. And here's another picture of the Roman soldiers. We flash from the screen of the risen video. Here is the Roman soldier standing with all of his armament on him. And we want to take it piece by piece as we go through this together. And the first piece of the armament that uh, Paul picks on, the very first one is foundation to all the others. It is the belt of truth. The belt that they would put on around themselves was to cinch up sort of their tunic. As you can see, they didn't have the kind of pants that we wear today. And so we didn't, he didn't want that sort of flopping around in the wind and getting in the way. And so he would cinch that up and it would hold together the garb that is underneath the belt so that he has better mobility and he can move around. So Paul says the very first thing that the Roman, the Roman soldier will put on is this belt. And he says the very first thing you need to have foundational to all that you believe in and all that you live out is the belt of truth. Just as he puts it on first, this has to be first. Because without truth, the rest of it will fall apart. It won't stand. And so he wants us to have an armament that allows us to gain mobility and be able to be, uh, a, remove the distractions that gets in our way. And I'm going to break down some of these things. 
There is the objective truth, I think, that Paul might have had in his mind, and then there's subjective truth. The objective truth, we know that is truth is truth. It is absolute truth. And I often have quoted Genesis 3.1. The very first words of Satan in the form of a serpent were to Eve when he said, indeed has God said. The very first attack by Satan in the garden when all was perfect, there was no sin. But his attempt to cause sin in Eve and Adam's lives, it began with truth. Indeed, did God say this is so? Is it really true what God has said? So we know that there is this objective truth that Satan loves to attack. He attacked it first. Paul says, make that the first piece of the armament that you wear, that you know what objective truth is. When you get rid of objective truth, when you get rid of the fact that the Bible is true from front cover to back cover, when you begin to spin it, distort it, you begin to reinterpret it, you begin to make it fit your values of truth, not God's values of truth, then this is what happens. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, he says, as a result, when you lose truth, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, a life of instability being pushed around by the cultural winds and opinions of people that are around us, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Today, we live in a world where truth is no longer absolute, where your truth and my truth may be in contrast to each other. They may even conflict as black and white does, but it doesn't bother people that we have our own individual versions of truth. So Paul says you need to have objective truth. Then you need to have subjective truth, in my interpretation of Paul's words. 2 Timothy 4 says, no soldier in active service, Paul wrote this as well, no soldier in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life. That's subjective. Those things that are around me that want to snag me so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And then also in Hebrews 12, the author says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. There are sins that entangle us. There are the affairs of the world that entangle us. And like the belt that's not cinched up the tunic, these sins and these activities of the world, they will snare us and we won't have the mobility because we don't know what's true anymore. We don't have an absolute truth upon which we build our lives. So we need to remove the distractions. And here are the things I've said before. I'm going to repeat it because I like it so much. And so in my own self-congratulatory way, I believe some of the biggest problems a lot of American Christians have today and the ensnarement of a healthy followership of Jesus Christ and an effective God-honoring church that loves him and serves him are the five P's of pride. My, this is the list that I've created, but I believe that they are still true even though I created them because I believe I can show it you in Scripture. They don't have time to go into it. But the first is this, that some people are ensnaring themselves, the subjective truth, 
They're ensnaring themselves the sin of position. That is, those areas that I will gain value in by what I achieve in my life. It could be position at work, position at school, position on a team, whatever it may be, but if that is my value system, and I will sacrifice everything to gain that position, I have ensnared myself. And this subjective false narrative of your life, it begins to tear you down. Because you can have great position at work, and then you can lose your children because you're never around when they need you. Secondly, prestige. When I am more concerned about what others think about me than what God thinks about me, I fall fallen victim to pride. Prestige is the concern and the value system that says, I want other people to like me, so I don't want to stand in a position where my truth offends them. Now, we need to speak the truth in love, but the danger is that too often we back away from even what is true because we don't want to offend anybody. Because I'm more concerned about what people think of me and how they like me than that I stand on the objective belt of truth. Possessions. We live in a very affluent Orange County area, even though there are great pockets of poverty, but we are driven too many times by the possessions of those things that we gain, from the technological things to the automotive things and Lord knows from the motorcycle things, we are sometimes consumed with the possessions that we have, and they begin to erode away the vitality of a faith in Jesus Christ. The power, those things I can control, my value becomes upon which that I control. I want control over my life. I don't want anybody to come along and tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because I want to have a position of power. I control what I do. And no one can bring objective truth to undermine the power to control my own life. So we all live in this sort of this individualistic society that you cannot infringe upon my truth with your truth because I lose the power. And then finally, pleasure. We are driven by what makes us happy. I want to be happy. And I don't know how many times I've heard people who have bad marriages who are divorced Say, I deserve to be happy. Well, yeah, I don't. Who doesn't want you to be happy? Is that the objective truth of what Scripture teaches? Or is that per, my personal preference? And that's my truth, even if it's not your truth. So we need to be careful that we have these areas that ensnare us, they entangle us. They are sins and they are the affairs of the world. Secondly, there is the breastplate. The breastplate in those days, the Roman soldiers were sometimes made out of metal, but they would pound it and shape it to cover up their chest. Sometimes it was made out of leather, and they would cover that leather up. Sometimes it was a very firm cloth that would be shaped together as well. But whatever the case, it was the covering of the heart, covering the main character traits of the internal organs of the body. And so Paul says, this is the piece, I believe, that helps protect our heart and our character. And when my heart and my character is in solidarity with God's truth, I have great mobility to stand firm in the battle. Sin erodes my ability to stand on the truth of God's Word. And when sin comes into my life, my heart is corrupted because I'm living a sinful life. I can't possibly have the mobility and be able to stand firm. Satan loves to come and erode the righteousness of God in our lives. And here is something that I learned. I uh, hang out with the Santa Ana police on occasion, and uh, I used to have a bulletproof vest, and they said you need to turn that in because that bulletproof vest, it's out of date and it wears out. 
And uh, if a bullet would hit it, it may go through. So we gave you, so he, they gave us, gave me a brand new bulletproof vest. I didn't know bulletproof vests have a lifespan, but I learned that. And so it taught me this, that there are breastplates of righteousness that are out of tune with God. They are false. And Satan loves to create counterfeits. He loves to create counterfeits. So I want to show you four breastplates that are counterfeits to God's breastplate of righteousness. Perfectionistic, comparative, complacent, and self-righteous. Again, I know it's a lot. We're going through it quickly. You've got the notes. You can dive into it on your own. But perfectionistic righteousness is the kind of righteousness where Satan loves to tell me that I don't have what it takes. I am unworthy. I should be ashamed of myself constantly because I can never achieve the righteousness of God. So you might as well give up. Satan tells us, our, our scripture teaches us about Satan in Revelation 12:10. He accuses us day and night. Satan is constantly going to the Father and saying, you know, Dave Mitchell doesn't have what it takes. Dave Mitchell should not be up there preaching. He, he is unworthy. You see how unrighteous his life is? Who is he to tell anyone else? Who am I to tell you because I don't have what it takes either? And we have this woe is me, shame-based righteousness because we're never as perfect as we think we should be. So therefore, we just sort of give up. That's a false breastplate of self-righteousness or perfectionistic righteousness. And then there is the comparative righteousness. There are some believers who put on this kind of a righteousness, and they look around themselves like the Pharisee in Luke 18.10. The Pharisee was praying, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people because I'm so much better than they are. It's where I feel superior because I can always find a sinner that's worse than me. Here's the danger. Let me get a little, little step on some toes, if not your whole feet. In a church like ours, evangelical, Christian, Bible-based, object of truth, it's easy for us to attack gay marriages and the gay lifestyle. Oh, boy. You know, it's prevalent this last year. A lot of changes taking place. Yet I say we need to be awfully careful. Why is that? Because when you look at the divorce rate, the adultery rate, and sleeping together outside of rate of evangelical Christians, it's easy for Christians to throw stones at the gay lifestyle. But you know what we don't talk about much anymore? That God said he hates divorce. And we're a little, oh, we don't want to go there because there's so many divorcees. And I'm not saying this to shame any divorcees here. That's not my attempt. My heart is simply to say that I need to be careful before I start looking superior to others to make sure I am who God wants me to be. And as a church, for us to make a blanket condemnation of a group of people for a certain kind of behavior, it's dangerous to do that because there are so many others in my own eye that I need to clean out. So I say be careful. Comparative righteousness is this kind of a superiority attitude that I feel like I'm okay because I'm better than a lot of other people who aren't following Jesus. Then there's complacent righteousness where I no longer grow and, and I'm mature and I just sort of accept my sinful weakness. 
I adjust my values to align them with the current cultural values. I live comfortably with the lesser sins like jealousy and resentment. I just I sort of flippantly use those sins. You know, one of the things that Joy and I, you know, talk about, you know, we got a larger home, we like this maybe downscale, whatever. So you look at your home. You ever looked at your home with the idea that someone will walk through it as an open house to find out what I want to buy this home? When you look at your home as a stranger walking through your home to look at your home to assess it, you begin to see a lot of stuff that you live with that just isn't right. And it's just a little scary when we walk through, oh, oh here's a wall that the, the drywall cracked and I put a little, you know, white, uh, um, what do you call that stuff that you stick on a little spackle, thank you. So I put a little spackle on it, but it's been there for years. Never painted over it. Never painted over it. Just, I just walk by, I walk by it literally every single day. But I haven't for years painted over the spackle to cover that spot up. And there are many spots like that. Right now we're changing all the light switch. And I could tell you stories of what happens when you don't turn the breaker off. But that's a whole other conversation that I won't get into right now. And so you go through this process, but you see things that you learn to live with that just aren't right. Spiritually, sometimes we begin to live with things for so long, we don't see it anymore. I had a pastor that I know uh, who used to be in uh, professional sports. And one of the things this pastor did as he grew up, he, he, would, he would use swear words all the time in his sport. And he would use the F word a lot. He says, now that I'm preaching, occasionally the F word comes out in the message. <laughs> you go, oh my goodness. And so what happens, see, it's this kind of a righteousness where there are certain things that I just have always done. I know I shouldn't do it, but I become complacent in not changing because it's become acceptable in society. And so I need to be careful that the complacency of my righteousness, where there are those areas that just need that touch-up, that clean-up, that correction, that forgiveness, where those things can be addressed. So I, 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 I get concerned that I become complacent in my unrighteousness and don't address those things that need to be repaired. And then there's self-righteousness. It's where I achieve favor with God by doing good things, where it's all about what I do, not what God and His power of His Spirit does through me. It is a definition of my sin that I have determined is uh, wrong for me, so therefore it's wrong for me. It should be wrong for you as well. And self-righteous people love to condemn other people who don't live according to the opinion of their sinfulness. And it's a dangerous place to be. And uh, God says, don't be a self-righteous person. So we put on the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 4 says, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. Where you and I need to put on that breastplate is to simply rest in the fact that Jesus is a righteous God. And he gives to me his righteousness. He cleanses my life. And I live a life that continues to grow. I keep putting him on. I keep on shaping my life in the likeness of who God is. And his life begins to take shape in my life. 
And I'm not perfectionistic. I'm not comparing myself to others. I'm not complacent because I'm cleaning up as soon as I see it. As soon as I correct it, I move on from it. I don't live in it. And I'm not trying to achieve it in my own power. I'm letting Jesus do it. And I'm putting on this new power of Christ in this new self. And it's a spiritual journey, and it's mysterious in so many ways. But it's through confession and faith that the breastplate of righteousness takes hold And I don't have to worry about the hypocrisy danger, the comparison danger, because I rest in the righteousness of Jesus, and he does it all for me. And then there is the feet, shod with the the gospel of peace. Notice in the bottom of the shoes of these uh, Roman soldiers, they would have what are essentially like uh, baseball cleats, where they would have these things that would stick in the ground. If you've never been to Israel or the Middle East, there's a lot of sand and there's a lot of rock. And it's easy to lose your footing. So they would put on these shoes and often they would come up on high on their ankles somewhere on their, their lower part of their leg to give them the ability to stand firm, to stand strong. And he says, this is what you need to have, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It helps me to not fall but to stand firm and to be able to move forward for Christ. Not slipping and sliding but having this capacity. And what happens when that happens? It's the peace of God that comes in my life. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and exult in the hope of the glory of God. When the peace of God through Jesus Christ is in me. I have peace with God. I don't worry about God's condemnation. I don't worry about God's judgment. I don't worry about getting out of line every so often and God's going to just squish me like a little bug. I live in the reality of the strength of the peace that I have with God. And when that peace is in me, that peace goes to people around me. The peace that is vertical into God becomes the peace that is horizontal into my life and the lives of those around me. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When his peace is in me, then there is no anxiety about the, the affairs of the world that often entangle us. There's not worry, there's an anxiety. We read the headlines. We hear about officers being killed. We hear about officers killing other people. We see the politics. We see all this stuff. And it can cause a lot of anxiety to say, Lord God, what's going on in this world? And then we say, but God, your peace is in me. And to wherever I go, your peace will go with me. Because I don't want to be overwhelmed by the Affairs and the entanglement of this world. That's what, remember, Hebrews 12 and 2 Timothy 2. He wants us to live in a peaceful life. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I go to the word of God. And much as we sang the beautiful truth about God and the sovereignty, I go here, and the word of Christ gives peace to my heart. Because I want to stand firm. I don't want to slip and slide. I don't want to get tripped up by all the stuff that goes on around me. And then finally, 
John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. God says, I want you to live in peace. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by the things of this world. I want you to live in peace. It's interesting, Alexander the Great, one of the great battlers way back uh, before the days of Jesus, when he would leave a battlefield, he would use psychological operations. And he would construct, he would have his men construct helmets that were enormous. And he would have swords and spears that, uh, and, and breastplates that were giant. And it looked as if, and, and he would leave those on the battlefield as they left. And when the enemy would come, they would look at these armaments, and they were so huge that the enemy concluded that these followers of Alexander must be seven or eight feet tall to be able to carry armaments like that. It was part of his psyops, as they might call it, where he created fear and anxiety in the enemy's mind by simply having these tactics of oversized armament to somehow dissuade them from following him. Satan does that. Satan loves to create this mindset that God's out of control. He's lost control. The world's going to hell, and we don't know what to do. There's so much chaos. There's so much lying. There's so much deceit. There's so much killing. And God says, wait a second. I'm still sovereign, and through Christ I've given you my peace. I simply want you to not have anxiety because I am still in charge. I'm still in control. So live with a feet shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel of Christ gives me that peace. And then there is this uh, shield that he has here. He says, I want you to take this shield of faith. And you notice how the, in the video, how they would hunker down below and all of them would put their shields side by side. And no matter the boulder, no matter the rocks, and even the, uh, the, the Roman soldiers could walk on top of them, this is this beautiful concept of being, living life better together. It's one of the reasons we have that theme here at Calvary. Because you notice that in this image of these shields, when you combine them together, we are a stronger, more defensive position from the attack of the enemy. And when I stand side by side with others, that shield becomes even more of a protection for me. And what is that shield? It's the shield of faith. In addition, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And one of those days, in those days, they would take arrows and they would put pitch on the tip of the arrow. And they would light that pitch with fire and they would shoot that arrow. And it would come and it would splatter on these uh, soldiers and some of that pitch would be scattered everywhere and it would burn them wherever it went and even light their clothes on fire. So they would have the shield that is covered with this uh, leather and sometimes put water on it. So when the arrows would fly, the uh, pitch would not catch their shields on fire, and the shields would protect them from harm. So Paul says, you know, that's, that's what we need. We need to have the kind of shield of faith that I take it up and hold it because the fiery darts of the evil one wants to take me out. And I don't have time to go into Matthew chapter 4, but it's a beautiful story of Jesus and a temptation where Satan came to him. But I want to show you four, three of the darts that Satan will throw at us. Without reading the text, and I'm sorry I don't have time to get into, the text reveals this truth, that the very first arrow was the doubting arrow, 
where Satan came to Jesus after he'd fasted for 40 days. And he says, why don't you turn these rocks into bread so you can eat something and satisfy your physical hunger? And Jesus says, no, I'm going to trust God. What Satan loves to do is creating doubting faith, that God's not going to provide for me, that God's not going to do a miracle for me, that God's not going to take care of my needs. That's the doubting arrow. And I need to hold up the shield of faith says, no, God, I'm going to trust you for this. This goes way beyond anything I can imagine that you could ever do for me, but I'm going to hold up the shield of faith and I'm not going to let the enemy make me doubt the power that you have to provide for me. Secondly, there's the arrow of a testing faith. Why don't you jump off and let God take care of you? Didn't the Scriptures say that God would take care of you? So jump off this cliff. Jump off and uh, trust God with your life. And Jesus, I'm not going to test the Father in heaven. I don't need to do that. I don't have to wonder, is God going to care for me now? I don't have to misuse Scripture to somehow prove that God really loves me. A testing faith is where I'm not sure God will come through for me. No, he will. And Satan wants to create this doubt, this test. Let me test God. How much does he really love me? So I'm going to jump off the, the tower of a building and see if he'll catch me on my way down. That's lunacy. Well, Satan has various subtle ways in which he will cause us to test God that way. And then finally, there will be the selfish faith that uh, I want what I want when I want it, and there's no need to disobey God. And, and Jesus responds to Satan, says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. You shall serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. And I appeal that we would be people that really know what it means to trust God. To trust a God that raised Jesus from the dead. To trust a God that has given us scriptures that continue to guide us in how to live our lives. To trust a God that says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and you will have righteousness that is full and complete. To trust a God that whatever I'm going through right now, that God, you're going to do it. You're going to take care of me. I'm not going to doubt you. I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to question you. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what God's word says. I'm going to be obedient to your word. I'm not going to distort it. I'm not going to twist it. I'm not going to be tossed here and there by the winds of the world and the cultural values that are ever-changing. I'm going to trust you that you're going to do a work. And we live that way. Because the enemy wants to create doubt. He wants us to have minds that test God, that he really doesn't care for me now. And then he says to put on the helmet of salvation. Here's the helmet they would wear that would cover them all the way down to the sides of their cheeks. And Paul writes, take up that helmet, put it on. This piece protects my mind, the truth of God's salvation. And uh, I'm going to trust you to read Ephesians 1 that comes in the same book. But here are some of the things that I noticed about the salvation that comes from Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't need to ask for them. I need to understand them. We're chosen by God before the foundation of the world. It was not a happen chance that I became a follower of Jesus. He knew me before I was born. I need to rest in that salvation. We're chosen by God to be holy and blameless. Don't forget why I was saved. It's to be holy. Not necessarily always happy, but to be holy and trusting in a mighty God that wants to continue to work in my life. We're adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ, so don't second guess who am I in Jesus. 
He has adopted me. I am his child. And as his child, I've been forgiven of all my sins so I can live in this lavish grace that he gives upon me. I don't sin that grace may abound, but every time I sin, I know there's more than enough grace to bring me back to be fully a follower of Christ and to live that in the holiness that he's called me to live. And when he adopted me, he gave me the inheritance of heaven. And I don't have to ever wonder We have the Holy Spirit that secures my salvation. I'll never lose it. I'll never lose my salvation. And a lot of people question that. And Satan says, put on the helmet of salvation. Live fully in the reality of that salvation. And then finally, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we have salvation by faith through God's grace, not by my works. Satan has deceived so many people today that believes the helmet of salvation is put on by how hard I work, by how well I go to church, by how much money I give, and how much I keep the Ten Commandments. Satan has deceived so many people, and they have a false helmet of salvation. And God says, put on the helmet of salvation that is God's, that is the fullness of who that salvation belongs to. And then finally, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and it offers us practical help. Here's two great verses. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Spend time, if you're not already, spend time in the Bible and let God's spirit speak deep into your soul, to your spirit, to the deepest innermost regions of your heart that the Word of God begins to shape me. Believe that God's work will come to the inner soul of our being, that it will address the needs of our hearts. There is no other book that ever claims to do that, but Scripture does and accomplishes it regularly for those who knows what it means to be a student of this Word. And then finally, you take that Scripture and it begins to equip you for every good deed because it'll teach, it will approve, it'll correct, it'll train, so you're equipped for every good deed. You'll have all that you need. God invites us into that, and there's two questions I put at the back of the outline. Which of these pieces of armor do you already enjoy? Where are you the strongest? And then secondly, which of these pieces of armor do you need to put on and learn better how to use? Now, I flew through them very fast. We could have spent a Sunday on each of those. We could have had six Sundays on this stuff. But I want to invite you to say, you know, God, you've whetted my appetite for this one particularly, this piece of armor that I need to put on and make it fit, custom fit for me so I can live in obedience and holiness where the truth and the righteousness of God are foundational to all the rest so there is peace, so there is peace, so there is faith, so I enjoy my salvation. Because the Word of God is constantly equipping me. And when I live that kind of life, I've, I've hit the sweet spot with God. Those are the areas that we need to have armament for. Those are the things that God says are the most important. Those are the areas that Satan will attack us in strongest. We need to cook, keep assessing. Is the armor on? And am I using it well for God's sake? Let's pray. Help us, Father, as we look to you for the strength that we need because, God, these are, these are heavy topics, and there's so much here. So, Lord, I leave it with your Holy Spirit in, in a way that is unusual to speak into each of our own hearts as to the area that 
you want to really form fit that piece of armor so that we are carrying on our bodies, our souls, those pieces that you have designed for us so that we will always stand firm when the enemy attacks. And we know he's attacking. He's creating havoc. He's creating anxiety. He's dividing people. And the God that you would give to us the strength to be fully equipped for every good work. Help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.